Today we are going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Bibles are in the front of you. If you're in the pews, the red ones are the large letter print and the blue ones are regular. Today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, two weeks ago when we were in chapter 11, we saw that much was about spiritual warfare. And today's chapter, and this is a continuing letter that the Apostle Paul sent to the Corinthians, we're going to see one of the well-known scriptures and passages of the Apostle Paul's heavenly vision, his, his heavenly experience. But what a lot of folks may not know is that the reason why he gives this vision and speaks about it, it really arose out of his defending his apostleship, and we'll cover that. So verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I forbear, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. So he left off. Uh, really boasting, which was out of character for Paul. Paul wasn't a braggart, and I don't think it's bragging. Uh, he was kind of pushed into a position where he's trying to speak spiritual to the Corinthians. Now, there was a faction of those that were in sin. A lot of them repented, but there still was a problem in this church. There was a faction of problematic people that the Apostle Paul had to address. And he tried to address brother to brother in spiritual terms. But a lot of these Corinthians were just not there. They were babies. They were babies spiritually. And what he ended up having to do was uh, defending himself. Uh, so the Corinthians were caught up in charisma, of these uh, itinerant preachers or false teachers that came through. They had their degrees. They had their letters of recommendations. They charged a high fee to speak at the church. So, of course, if they're charging that high of a fee, they must be good, and they must know what they're talking about. So this is what the Apostle Paul is up against. So he speaks about his, this one particular vision to say, listen, I've got just as many qualifications than they do. As a matter of fact, God has used me in this way. So this is the coup de grace, the story to trump all stories. Now, some speculate that this vision, he, is, he says, like, was it in the body? I don't know. Is it out of the body? I don't know. But I can tell you what was there. And some speculate that this may have been from Acts chapter 14, the stoning incident, uh, incident at Lystra, where they pelted him with rocks until he was what they thought was dead. He keeled over, and they had thought that the apostle Paul had had it. Um, I'm going to speculate here. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but it is quite possible that, like Lazarus, Paul's spirit now was separated from his body. He got to see the throne room of heaven. He got to see inexpressible things. And then God says, hold that in your heart because you're going back down there. You know what I'm saying? Sort of like Lazarus. You know, for four days, he, his body started to stink, his sister said. He was in the tomb, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus was somewhere in those four days, but he wasn't in the body. Uh, I, I, poor Lazarus, I can imagine his experience being in the arms of the Lord and then all of a sudden have to come down to this uh, disheveled bodies that we live in, right? 
So this is what we're dealing with. But either way, Paul was ushered into the throne room of heaven. Verse 4, he said, I was caught up into paradise, right? Caught up into paradise. Now, this is important because there's teachings that are coming around now. They're making a resurgence where they're really attacking the rapture of the church. They're attacking the Lord Jesus coming in the clouds of the air like 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us and at some point in time interrupting human history and calling his people home. Could that happen while we're still alive? Some of us, yes. Um, it's, it's, that's, that's God's idea and that's God's choice and we can't uh, set dates and times for that. But the word caught up is the word harpazo in the Greek, which is the same word for the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, where the Lord appears in the clouds of the air with a trumpet burst, with a shout, and his believers are caught up into, into the throne room of heavens, much like what's happening here with Paul. Uh, now, he says he's, it's caught up, he was caught up into the third heaven. This is interesting too, and I want to get a little, I guess, quasi-scientific here because I think it's, uh, it really will help us to understand what does the third heaven mean, and how do we know that it means heaven? Well, the word for heaven in the Greek was uranos, and that might sound familiar to you because in the English, we get the word uh, Uranus or Uranus, however you want to say that planet, and also the mythical god of the heavens. So keep that in your mind. This idea of Oranus is an idea of elevation, okay? Uh, elevation. Now, it's very similar to the firmament in Genesis 1, where God speaks about the waters that divided the firmament from the firmament, this idea of elevation. This is what we have, the first level. If you go outside and you touch the ground from the ground all the way up to the cloud covering, and a little bit beyond that is our atmosphere. That's the first Uranus. Now, once we leave the Earth's atmosphere, we get into outer space, and the universe is vast. But it's all the same. It's just the vastness, right? That is the second level. That's the second Uranus. The third level is God's throne room, which cannot be attained by man. They tried it in the Tower of Babel, but it didn't work. So to get to the third Uranus, God's throne room, takes definitely uh, help from the Lord, otherwise we don't get there. So that's where he was. The word also paradise, he says, I was in paradise. This is very interesting because in the Greek, it's the same word that's used in Luke 23, where Jesus says to the thief that's crucified next to him, where the thief believes in him, they're both being crucified, their bodies are dying, and Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, what's he speaking about? Same thing the apostle Paul is speaking about. When the physical body dies, this is where the spirit goes. So it's kind of neat. But in the same verse, he says, the things, basically, the things I experienced there in heaven are, number one, unexplainable, number two, unlawful to repeat, and even if I could repeat them and try to explain it, I couldn't do them justice. In a sense, you're, you're trying to explain a four-dimensional concept to three-dimensional people. It doesn't work, right? So... It's just going to be amazing when we get there and we're going to look back and go, wow, I could have never imagined it would be like this. So that's what we're dealing with. And I believe that if every believer truly trusted God and believed his promises and believed what they read in his word, it would eliminate the five destructive C's of Christianity. Clickish, convenient, casual, carnal, and cultural Christianity. See, when we devote our time to him and we trust in him, okay, it, it shows that we have a greater understanding of heavenly things. There's a, a pastor who came up with a concept. I thought it was interesting. I'm still checking him out. I don't really know much about him. Uh, but he has this concept called the Christian atheist. 
Okay? And a lot of churchgoers fit into that. That's the Christian who believes in God, but doesn't really live by the word. They believe in God, but you wouldn't know it from their actions. You couldn't tell the difference between them and their neighbors. And he, he as a pastor, said, I was caught up in that atheistic Christianity, but I've, I've repented of that. So it, it's pretty fascinating. Others refuse to get on board because they think that the pleasures of the flesh, I got to get it all out now. It's the concept of, I better do it now, otherwise I'm going to miss something. Because then when I get to heaven, God's going to kill all of our fun, right? He's going to say, well, now you're in heaven. I'm going to remove your arms and legs, put a few wings on you, and you're going to do this for all of eternity. You know what I'm saying? And that's just, the, it's just wrong, you know? God's not going to take us to heaven to, to, to hurt us or to destroy our fun. It's going to be a glorious time, something that we can't really understand. And I think it's interesting because we live in a society of instant gratification. In other words, you ever see that commercial? I think it's for a lending company or a bank or something. Everybody's opening up their windows and they come out of the, the window and they go, I want my money and I want it now. How many of you have seen that commercial? I don't even know what it's for. But it's, it's certainly enticing. Yeah, I want my money and I want it now. I want my drugs and I want them now. I want my sex and I want it now. That's the idea in the American culture. You don't have to wait for it. It's, you know, you go through a drive-thru, you can get a, a, a fully prepared meal from any place. I mean, you can shop online. We live in the society of instant gratification. And it's different than what our grandparents had come up with. You know, I know my grandparents, they struggled, they suffered, they did without to bless their children and their grandchildren. We're living in a society now where, where the culture and the government has the idea, who cares in, in 30, 40 years what the debt's going to look like? Who cares if the Chinese are going to own half this country? Who cares what our grandparents are going to have to deal with? Let's get it, and let's get it now. And that's the problem. I'm missing out on something. And I really believe that once we get to heaven and we are just enjoying what God has for us, I don't believe anyone's going to look back and say, gee, I'd, I'd rather go back there. You know, I'm kind of really not having fun up here. I, I really have a hard time believing that. And in verse 5 and 6, Apostle Paul says, of such a thing or of this sort, I will boast. Now, some may ask, why does he speak of himself in the third person? Well, two things. Back then, there was a rabbinical style where some of the rabbis would speak in the third person about themselves. The other point is that he was trying to distance himself from getting the glory of this situation. I won't boast about me, but this situation, this was an incredible experience, the experience to top all experiences. So that's what, what I believe about that. Um, his experience was something to brag about, but not in himself. In other words, he was going to prove his apostleship and move on. This was something to look forward to. This was something to hide in his heart. And it wasn't something that he would have to continually ask God, can you show me that again? Can you show me that again? There's no indication of that in the scripture. But what his concern was, if you read what he's saying, is that the carnal Christian may look at the experience and say, wow, you know what, Paul, now we accept you. Now we look at you as the apostle Paul. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great fish story. We love it. Paul was saying, don't evaluate me based on this vision evaluate me on what's been going on for the last X amount of years, ministering among you, planting the church, and things to that nature. Don't look at me based on an experience. 
And many believers today are looking for experiences. I have to say that. There are whole denominations out there built on experiences. You know, the Christian goes from church to church to church. They go to the one church and they love to worship, but, you know, they're not really thrilled about the preaching. They go to another church and the preacher really wows them, but they're really not, you know, the church is a little stuffy. They'll go to another church and it's a multimedia experience and they're really into that. That's like Goldilocks Christianity. You just keep testing the porridges until you find something that's just right. And I remember when I had um, a Sunday night Bible study and a, a brother that I had a hand in leading to the Lord and discipling, uh, I was feeling, I don't know, I thought the teaching one night was kind of weak. And I called him up and I said, what did you think of my teaching? I was a little flat tonight. And he goes, Joe, he goes, it's the word of God. It's not always going to be entertaining. And I went like this with the phone. <laughs> He's the new believer. But out of the mouth of, of babes, God has ordained praise. I'm like, that was profound. Very good. I'm, I'm going to shut my mouth at this point. But Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation seek after a sign. And that's still true today. What is Calvary Chapel? What is Calvary Chapel Crossfields? What is church supposed to be? Well, I do have our little folder outside about what we believe. And it says, it's basically the philosophy of Calvary Chapel. Win a person to Christ. Evangelize. Preach the good news because it is the good news. We don't want anybody perishing without, without the Lord. So we win a person to Christ. And then the second thing we do is disciple a person. We help them to understand the word. We help them to grow in the Lord. Uh, we help them to live their lives, not as atheistic Christians, but according to God's word. And then three, once they're built up, send a person for Jesus Christ. And that's the whole idea. That's the whole idea. It's not experience-oriented. I have to tell you, um, for just on a personal note, I would, it, to, the numbers don't matter to me. The tithes don't matter to me. What matters to me is that we have a solid group of people like Gideon's 300. He started with a lot of guys and whittled it down all the way to 300. And they were able to defeat the enemy, right? As a matter of fact, I was going through the, the church library here and there was a few hundred books, probably dating back 15, 20 or more years. And there was a few of them that caught my eye that said, um, you know, church growth and uh, how to grow your finances, how to grow your fellowship. And I'll tell you what I did. I took all the books together and it took me great pleasure to go outside to the dumpster and throw them in the dumpster. Now, I'm, not a, I'm not a book burning type of person, but unless it's from the Lord, it's garbage. Who cares about man's ways? If this place is meant to be successful, it's going to be from the Lord. It isn't going to be from some guru who came up with some great idea to get more money from people and get more people. To, we're not going to start selling toasters on the corner. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, we're on attic parking as it is, so we couldn't do that. <laughs> Verse 7. Paul says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me or to beat me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, this is how it starts to change. Most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
So just to make sure the Apostle Paul, and listen, we're all subject to pride. We're all subject to self-deception. We're all subject to thinking that we're greater than we actually are. And the Apostle Paul says, I mean, he, he got revelation that most people will never get in their lifetime, collectively. But just to buffet him so that he didn't get too ahead of himself, uh, he, he had this thorn in the flesh. And he asked three times to remove it. Now, some would say, according to some beliefs, that the Apostle Paul didn't have enough faith. That if you name it and claim it and you just mull it around in your mind long enough, it'll be yours, that positive confession. Well, we don't see that here, and God used him to write half of the New Testament. Sometimes God will allow an attack from the enemy, a limited assault on us to, uh, to grow us. And that sounds a little odd, but the Bible is all filled with this. First Peter and uh, uh, Romans 5, it is a character builder. It helps to keep us where we need to be spiritually. And I've shared this with you. In 1999 was probably the worst year of my life in that I suffered terrible, debilitating panic attacks. It's so bad. It was social anxiety that no way, if I was looking at all of you right now, I would have run out the back door. Um, how it happened, I mean, I can speculate. Um, God was able to get that, you know, to heal me from it. But my whole life was uncertain. And it couldn't have come in a worse time. My wife was pregnant. I was in the job that I loved. I actually took a lot of time off of work because I just couldn't go back to work. And when I went back to work, I wasn't sure if I was right yet. And I was concerned that I might be a, um, a hindrance to others in the community. And I was considering quitting the job. But I remember this verse. And it, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And I plastered that thing on the inside of the windshield of my patrol car. And I would look at it often during the day. And over time, the Lord removed it, right? But it was a very dark time in my life. And I'm like, I struggled. I was angry with the Lord. I was bitter. I'm like, I wasn't a believer that long. And I was like, Lord, you know, I'm trying to serve you. How could you let this happen? And if he could have talked to me audibly or wanted to, he would have said, exactly. It's because you want to serve me that I'm letting this happen. And I didn't get it at the time. But the point is that looking back, I was not qualified to be your senior pastor. I wasn't even qualified to be a pastor at all had that I not suffered those, uh, awful, that awful year of my life. Because what happens is we need to be changed. Our self-sufficiency is a hindrance to God. God's grace is sufficient for us. Now, God's grace, meaning that we come to the cross, we trust in Jesus Christ, God pours grace upon us, right? And we have the promise of eternal life. And that, it really is sufficient for us. Anything else that happens in this life that's good is just gravy on top. But the base and the most awesome thing we could experience is, is entrance into God's heaven for eternity. So God's grace is sufficient for us. And he knows what we need. But it says that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. You see, our will, our strength... Our self-sufficiency can be a big hindrance to us growing spiritually, right? I mean, you know, if you follow Pastor Ken Graves in Maine, I mean, he's, he does this whole series on men and women and how God has designed men to be the hero of the home and to his wife. And um, I like that. I like that my son and my wife look at me as the hero of the home. I like the job that I love when I, I first took the job being a police officer, protecting the community. I enjoy that. I wear it well. But the problem is it can get out of control. 
You see, anything that's good can turn bad. If we become too, this is what we do, folks. And it's not just physical prowess. It could be finances. It could be young people using their sexuality as power, right? It could be our education and our degrees. Hey, I can fall back on this. I got this great degree. I'm set. So what we do is we, we, we put the force field around us, right? We put up the machine gun turrets. We, we close the steel doors and lock them and say, I am protected. I am safe. God can't use us. See, when we start getting into that mindset, often what has to t- have is, or what has to occur is we have to lay down our will and empty ourselves, right? The treasures and earthen vessels. We are just a vessel. We are just one of those clay pots that were scattered all over the Mediterranean. They were useless. But what made them important was what those pots were filled with. If we're filled with ourselves, if I'm filled with me, God looks at me and he goes, oh, I just can't use this. I got to empty it out. So sometimes it's better for us to realize and look in the mirror and read the scripture and see where we fall short and ask the Lord, what is it about me that's hindering my walk with you? What's hindering me from being used of you? Very important to look at. In verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore I take pleasure in this list, the following list. Number one, infirmities, asthenia, indicates a disability, chronic or acute, through the physical body or the mind. There's no shame in falling down. We are frail human beings. And when we realize we're frail and that the moment I step out of church, I could get run over. I could, anything could happen to me. I could get a terrible virus, some type of sickness. I'm a frail human being. We, make, we need to take pleasure in realizing that we are frail, right? Physically, mentally, we're, we're fallen beings. Number two, in reproaches. These are kind of the pains of the heart. These are insults. These are harms. These are situations which will definitely come with serving the Lord. And number three, to be in need. Now, you hear a lot in today's society, my needs are not met. I need to have my needs met. Not necessarily. Sometimes we're best spiritually and we're ripe for God to use us when we are in need, when we see the lack in our lives. And four, persecutions. That's self-explanatory. Five, distresses. This word in the Greek is stenochorea. What I want to do is focus on the base, which is steno. This is interesting. If you look at this word, It means literally a narrowness of room, to be forced in a small place. We get the word in English stenosis from. If you know your, if you're familiar with medical history, stenosis is where a nerve goes through the foramen between the vertebrae, and what happens is it's a really tight spot, and the nerve gets impinged. And what happens is the nerve starts to die. It causes pain, it causes numbness, and it can cause neuropathy, right? So that's the picture. And I have to tell you that this week, I've spoken to no less than three people who felt suffocated, who felt claustrophobic, who felt the walls were closing. I'm at the end of my rope. As a pastor, you hear that a lot. Pastor, I'm at the end of my rope. Lord, why is this happening? Why are you allowing this to happen? Well, let's read what the Apostle Paul says. Paul goes from God, please take it away. He asks three times. Two, I will boast in my infirmities and I will take pleasure in my infirmities. How can he do that in, in the matter of one or two verses? Well, what's he doing? Well, here's the answer. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. That God's strength is made perfect. And when I'm weak, I'm strong. Now, this flies in the face of locker room talk. 
It flies in the face of contemporary wisdom. It flies in the face of contemporary psychology. This doesn't make any sense. This is bad for you. It's bad for your self-esteem. That's why people shouldn't read the Bible, right? That's, right? That's what they're saying. I mean, it's the truth. Who wants to glory in their weakness? Now, I'm going to be transparent with you, and I just, just by a nodding of the head or, or just tell me here that it's not, I'm not the only one. In my life, look, as a pastor, I talk to the Lord every day. I'm in the Word. I love my God. We have a relationship, right? I, I liken it to the Old Testament where David would write the Psalms about his just intimate time with the Lord. But I have to be honest with you. I have a confession to make. I have never been so close to the Lord than when I've been completely broken. Anybody else? Right? We run to the Lord when we're completely broken, when all my avenues, all my money, all my talents, all my gifts have run out. We're never as so close to the Lord. And it's kind of, you would think for God he'd be insulted, but he always takes us back. Because we always try to do it ourselves first, right? And then we run to him. But we also see in life and in this scripture that there are heavenly experiences. There are throne room experiences. And then there's sufferings. And there's trials and tribulations. And, and life, and the Christian life is no different. I'm not going to come up here and say, you need to come to the Lord because when you become a Christian, everything gets easy. I would be lying to you. We have those highs and we have those lows. Seriously, where would we be if we were always up here? There's a term for that. It's called manic. Right? It's called mania. That's not reality. That's not life. But when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because the Lord is with us. He promises us that. Verse 11, I've become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Again, the Apostle Paul, he's, he's miles away at times. He was in Ephesus, I believe, when he was writing this. And uh, the, he was, you know, on the home front, there were some difficulties and there were these false teachers that were coming in. And the Apostle Paul is trying to not only answer the charges that he was illegitimate, but also um, defend the message that he was giving because a lot of this stuff was getting in there. But the eminent apostles, this isn't a competition with the disciple Peter and the disciple John and the disciple James. Nobody's talking about it. He's speaking about these self-appointed apostles that had come in. And he's a little, you can sense the frustration that he has to boast and defend himself because he's saying, listen, you guys think these guys are so great. I have the same credentials, if not more. God chose me. I saw the resurrected Christ. He chose me, uh, you know, personally. Uh, but I shouldn't even have to be having this discussion with you because truly I'm not even anything. I'm an apostle, but I'm nothing because God should get all the glory. And you see that in here. And he also rebukes the Corinthians for not defending him and defending the character and defending the message. Uh, instead, it was almost like as if they were watching a tennis match, you know, going back and forth. And sometimes believers can, can have this attitude. As long as it doesn't affect me, I don't care. Or they'll watch two high-profile believers going back and forth at each other like blood sport. And that's wrong. We're supposed to be called to be peacemakers. 
But verse 12, the Apostle Paul speaks of the miraculous signs that surrounded his ministry as yet another uh, evidence of his apostleship. And verse 13, he answers charges. See, this is what happened. You, you can sense a little, I don't know, mild sarcasm here. He says, you, how are you inferior to other churches except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. And what happened was the Greek philosophy because uh, the, the, the nation, even though it was under Roman rule, it was Hellenized. It was under a lot of Greek philosophy and, and ideas. And the Greek philosophy said that a teacher could never be a blue-collar guy, so to speak. He could never get his hands dirty. But what Paul did was he came into Corinth, and he didn't want to be like the other uh, you know, itinerant preachers that were just charging money and taking their money. He loved them. So he worked with his hands, and he built tents. And the charge was that he can't really be legitimate because he gets his hands dirty. So this was the philosophy back then. And his attitude was, hey, forgive me for not soaking you, you know. Forgive me for not taking you to the cleaners. And he says in, I think, the last chapter that uh, if I'm illegitimate and you're illegitimate, then you're not even saved. So the whole argument's ridiculous. Verse 14, and he goes on here. He says, now for the third time I am ready to come to you. And I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundant me I, abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did, did we not walk in the same steps? And he, he continues his reasoning. He says, listen, I'm going to visit you, and I'm still not going to be a burden. All right, that's going to cause some to talk about the situation, but I'm going to come to you, and I'm still not going to burden you. I'm going to love you like a spiritual father. I want the best for you. I want to bless you. I want your heart, not your resources, right? And in verse 15, he says, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. That's one of the most painful things that we can experience in relationships. Be it, um, you know, two single people who fall in love and one takes the situation more seriously than the other and they um, get jilted by the one that leaves. Or even a parent doing so much for their wayward teens and their teens you know, maybe get caught up in drugs and steal from them and, and, you know, do these awful things to their parents. You know, we've seen it all. The hardest thing to have to deal with, one of the hardest things in life is more heart pain than physical pain because that takes sometimes a lot longer to heal. And, you know, it's just very painful when you love someone and you, they don't love you back. And if you've lived long enough, we've all experienced that in one form or another, right? But it's just as painful in ministry. The Apostle Paul loved them as a father to his children, and he saw their, some of them pulling away and, and really trying to destroy the church, uh, and it, it was very painful to him. Now, some in the world might have the attitude, you know what, I'm just not going to bother. I'm not going to pour my heart out again because it's just going to get stomped on. You've probably heard that. But Jesus spoke of a sacrificial love, okay? And that comes with the territory, especially in ministry. It's a sacrificial love. We're not always going to get that love returned. We're not always going to get the favor returned. But Christ calls our love to be a sacrificial type of love. And verse 16, again, the, the Apostle Paul was good for this. When he would answer charges, he would kind of uh, present the charge and say, and as far as this charge, and this is how I'm going to answer it. So 
Um, not that he's saying he, he used craftiness or guile, but that was the accusation against him. And his answer was, I sent Timothy, I sent Titus. He also sent an unnamed brother to them. And they came back with a good rapport with the people. Uh, they, you know, they were well received by the Corinthians and vice versa. Plus Paul's time, effort, and prayers. Right? So he's saying, you know, we treated you very good. We loved you. And verse 19, last few verses, he says again, did you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. For I fear lest when I come I shall not be found, or I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults, and lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and licentiousness which they have practiced. So Paul starts out by saying, we're not making excuses. You know, don't, don't miss the tone of this letter. This isn't so that we could be popular with you. It's not so we can excuse ourselves and make excuses for you to like us. He's saying, we had your best interest at, at our heart. As a matter of fact, if you understand the philosophy and you look at the missionary journeys on the map, Corinth was really the gateway to the West. So it's no wonder that Satan pounded this church, that Satan used Christians against the leadership because this was Paul's springboard to get out to the West and, and had all the way to Europe, all right? And it does appear that according to the scripture that we read, a lot of his missions to the West was hindered by this church, okay? So very interesting spiritual implications done. He says, God is our witness. And, and he also says, interesting, he goes, I may go there and find that I don't like what I see and you may not like my attitude in response to your bad behavior. I will deal with it. I'm not gonna tolerate it. Now, these are some of the characteristics that the Apostle Paul felt that he would find, and with good reason. Let's go through them. Number one, contentions, argues, debates, but that there's no substance of love at the core of those things. Two, jealousy. Jealousy is a major precipitator of all sin, if you think about it. If you're jealous of your neighbor's possessions, well, you want something, and why do they have it? I should have that. Or someone's talents. Well, you know, you, you look at someone else's talents, and you... Uh, feel a little bit inferior and you tend to attack that person. It's just behavioral stuff. So jealousy unfortunately is present in the church and it was present in that church. Three, outbursts of wrath. Of course we can't have that. I, I was, saw some uh, on the news like these videos of uh, uh, in some other countries, I'm sure it happened here too a few times, uh, there's like a town hall meeting or some type of political process and a fight breaks out and the politicians are pounding each other, you know, throwing tables. It's like, ah, oh, they're supposed to be representing the country, representing the, um, the district and they're just beating the heck out of each other. And it's just a, a, an all free for all brawl. Uh, you know, some of those videos are pretty wild. They're crazy. Four, selfish ambitions. This is ugly. This is those who go through the church looking how to see how they can elevate themselves. It's a selfish ambition. We see in 1 Corinthians uh, 12 through 14 what the body of Christ is supposed to look like. Well, this, these type of folks are individuals in the church that are only out for themselves. And they'll go through church to church to church until somebody can elevate them. Um, that's why we talk about team spirit 
And team spirit is important in the church. The worship team, we work as a team. It's not always easy, but it's done. I shouldn't say we because I'm not on the worship team for good reason. The ministry team, we work as a team. The ushers ministry, you know, they work as a team to get the job done. Team spirit is important because it shows us how we're to behave as the body of Christ. Working with folks you normally might not work with, but your common interest and your common goal is Christ, so you have the same mind as each other. Um, what else is in here? Backbitings and whisperings. Of course, they're not good. And six, conceits. Again, uh, Christian celebrities, those who go through and want to focus so much on themselves that they can't blend into the body of Christ. And that's a problem. You know, we're all here to work together in some capacity. Someone who's conceited, again, will try to stand out, maybe through bad behavior, trying to get attention, whatever the case may be, they want to stand out in the church. So conceits, it doesn't belong here. Seven, tumults, disorder, or out-of-control behavior. And Apostle Paul says this, his concern was two things. Number one, he says that my God will humble me and that he would basically see pockets of unrepentant wickedness in the church. He was concerned about uncleanness, fornication, and licentiousness, and that it would be tolerated when he got there. Now, this is interesting. Why is it, and if you look at these words, they're mostly followed or um, they're mostly uh, indicative of sexual improprieties. What's interesting is that idolatry is also spiritual. God a lot of times makes uh, analogies between sexual sins and how his people left him, how they hoard with other gods, how they uh, you know, put him in a position where they, they divorced him, you know, things to that nature. So you can look at a physical application and certainly a spiritual application. They didn't treat each other well, but they also didn't treat their God well, and that was the start of it. Paul says, my God will humble me. If you look at this, uh, if you take the word apart in the original language, humble me, it means to depress or to bring low. And he says, I will mourn. If you look at that word, it's to grieve as if grieving for the dead. And that's the way overt sin in the church should be looked at. It should bother us and we should grieve over it. And there's different extremes. Uh, sometimes if, some, if there's sin, uh, one group may come and glory in it. You know, that's an extreme position. They'll glory in it. Maybe they'll be happy that somebody fell or they'll engage in it, okay, and, and think it's okay. And the other extreme is to ignore it, you know, just kind of walk around with blinders on. And there's different ideas about what uh, Paul's saying here and, and how he actually would do this. Maybe humbling and grieving in that some were so sinful and self-deceived in the church regarding their own salvation. They were deceived about their own salvation. Maybe humbling and grievous as some were struck dead. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 11, didn't we? Uh, some were just so blatantly um, blasphemous and treated each other so badly that when they came together for the Lord's Supper uh, and they profaned it, God struck some of them dead. Uh, does God think any differently about that today? No. So we shouldn't think that God has changed his mind on that. Maybe in the church, pastors have shied away from calling out sin and talking about the reality of a literal hell and the importance of repentance, not only outside and inside the church. And we should love people so much that we would want to tell them the truth. Even if they look at us and think we're Bible thumpers or quacks or whatever the case may be, it's right here in the scripture. I'll tell you what, I'm not going to be the one on judgment day that stands there 
and has those being judged looked at me like, why didn't you tell me? Now, I know God can work all things out, but if it means that, that we're not liked here, that's better than if we didn't do what the Lord has called us to do. Preach the good news. But you know what the other part of that is? Why is it the good news? Because there's bad news. We've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all re rebelled against God. None is righteous, no, not one. So we don't deserve to be with him in eternity. We deserve hell. But Jesus came and took our punishments. He shed his blood on the cross, right? So that if we believe on him and believe in that sacrifice, we would have eternal life. That's the good news. But doesn't the good news look so much better when you know what the bad news is first, right? Come to Christ. Why? I don't know. The Bible says to come to Christ. No. There's a reason why we need to come to Christ. So if we don't know the Lord, if you don't know the Lord, your sins have offended God and you're doomed to eternity in hell, right? Unless you repent. If we do know the Lord, our sins have still offended God. And if we don't repent, our relationship will suffer for it. Let's pray.